The following sermon was delivered in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, it is my uh, joy to be with you. And um, yeah, when you have five mouths to feed, I have five children, 24 to 12, um, you have to uh, do what you need to do to take care of uh, those that God has entrusted to you, right? So, um, well, I want to invite you to go ahead and uh, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read the verses that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And then uh, I'm going to pray and trust that the Lord will help us. Okay, let's just look at this passage and, and we'll read it together. 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 7. Says, therefore, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Trust that you have your handout. You can follow along with me. Let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we um, look into this section of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, um, we come before you not as a, a matter of, um, of ritual or of just form, but because we know our need is great. And we need you to open our eyes to your word And then to apply it to our hearts, to our lives, to give us insight. We know that you, Holy Spirit, are a a perfect guide and counselor and comforter. And that you are at work in us. And so we would pray that even now you would meet with us and have your place, Lord Jesus, as the great shepherd of our lives. You're the head of the church. And so we would ask you now to to lead us, to guide us, to instruct us, to um, change our lives, and to help us grasp the truths here in this particular text, Lord. We need your help, and we pray that you would indeed meet with us and help us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I am going to be 53 next week. And uh, some of you might say, well, that's pretty young. Some of you might say, man, you're getting old. So I I don't know which standard you would be on that. But I can tell you one thing, that the older that I get, the more precious like-minded fellowship becomes. Especially, for me at least, is among the men at the level of leadership in the home and in the church. The encouragement that uh, we obtain from men who love the truth and will not sell it, who believe the same things and are sincerely, albeit imperfectly, we're, we're, we're not there yet, 
Trying to follow Christ closely is it's life-giving strength to us, to our souls. Our, our relationship around common commitments and understandings of the scripture are a vital means of grace in our lives, not to be underestimated or undervalued. Perhaps like me, some of you experience perhaps uh, sometime in your life spiritual stagnation or dryness because you have been immersed in a situation where the standards were very low in terms of leadership, uh, especially among the men. Men who are focused spiritual leaders in the home and in the church are um, an endangered species, to put it that way. They're hard to find and they're hard to create. And God's grace alone through his word is powerful enough to take a sinful man like me and save that man and then grow him into some semblance of a spiritual leader in his home or in the church. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I, I, I know that there, I've been around long enough to know that there are sometimes folks who travel greater distances than what they would like just to be around like-minded Brethren, like-minded people. Um, And you prefer to have something a little closer. You've learned through the hard way the precious value of like-minded fellowship. And so you have this desire. You sincerely own your responsibility, perhaps, fellows, this morning to be the leader in your home. But the joy of being around other people who say the same things that you say to your little flock, if you are married and have kids, is a great uh, joy to you because they're hearing it from somebody other than just you. And so my guess is that some of you maybe, in fact, in your past might feel like, yeah, I did my time in that assembly and um, you're you're glad to be freed uh, from it. But sadly, it's true, I would say this, that... um, In many assemblies, the discernment level is quite low, Um, quite low indeed. And um, we need to recover what I'm calling and what I think this text teaches is faithful spiritual leadership. And I'm going to probably, probably this is very patently, clearly addressed to the men this morning. We're just on the heels of Father's Day. Um, But we all exercise to some degree a level of spiritual leadership Um, in our lives. And so it's applicable uh, to to all of us. The reality is that doctrinal depth is lacking to the degree that most people, even most professing Christians, do not know the difference between a passing fad and an eternal truth. And we get sucked into these things. Flabby minds, unqualified leadership, worldly business methods, watered down worship experiences, the list goes on. That all perpetuates men who are not prepared or encouraged to really boldly lead their homes and tend to the things that God has assigned to us with uncompromising conviction and passionate love for Christ. Instead, what we do is what we see is an abundance of disordered homes and disillusioned dads. The effect is a weakened church testimony to a watching world and blurred lines of distinction between what we would say in this text is true biblical masculinity and true biblical leadership and 
cultural driven things. Now, we can rest assured of one thing, right? The Lord Jesus Christ will build his church. You guys comforted with that this morning? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to build his church. And so we have that assurance from the words of our Lord himself. Yet that promise in no way negates the means through which he will do it. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. The promise establishes the means. It guarantees that the means will be effective. And what is our Lord's method? It is faithful spiritual leadership that starts with the men. That's the means that he's established. So I would say it this way. Humanly speaking, I believe that as the men go, so goes the church. So men, if I could get a little bit more bold with you this morning, this church isn't going to go anywhere other than where you go personally. It will, the buck will stop with you. And so we come to this text, I think, to be stirred, to be encouraged. It is Paul's words to Timothy, Timothy's words to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And we stand in that chain of others down through the ages. The men are to be the spiritual leaders in their homes and the men need to be encouraged to own their God-given role regardless of your past failures, guys. Or even your present insecurities. Where men are serious, maturing, and leading, then as a member of their family or a member of the church of like-minded men pursuing this together, we are then less susceptible to Satan's schemes and devices. In other words, your immune system as a church and as a family will then be strong and function as God intends it to. You're more likely to be spiritually healthy and more capable of withstanding attacks against your soul. So strong, faithful, fatherly, male spiritual leadership is perhaps the most critical component to sustaining a God-honoring, Christ-exalting church. So in this passage, what I want to do is I want to have us to consider today what Paul outlines for us, which I have in your notes. There are six elements of faithful spiritual leadership. There are six of them, I think, in this text. And and the purpose is so that the men, fellas, that you guys, and then you ladies knowing how to support your men, or all of us as a congregation knowing how to pray for our men, and then setting that model, as it were, for everybody to then strive for as well, so that those men will be crystal clear on what they are to be and what they are to do. So I'm going to try to emphasize a little bit more in terms of the operation of spiritual leadership in the home. But when Paul wrote to Timothy as his life was drawing to the close, his focus was on Timothy's ministry in the church. This was part of his last communication, his final exhortations of critical components to ministry. And every man is assigned some form of spiritual leadership. You could look at your family as your own little church that you are to shepherd. We're to discern who should be elders in the life of the church. We're to know enough to detect false teaching. So could you detect that this morning? We're to protect and nurture our families. We're to be those who are wise counselors in our twilight years. Perhaps we could say it this way. If it's not you men, then who is it? 
If it's not you, then who is going to step up? Who is going to fulfill this? If you individually and all of us men collectively do not embrace our role as servant leaders in our homes and in the church, then who will? Who will? So given that role, let's turn to examining, a close examination of these six essential elements of faithful, fatherly, spiritual leadership. We already read the text. First one out of verse one is this for your notes. You are empowered by Christ-centered grace. I love that it starts right there. You're empowered by Christ-centered grace. The key to your strength to carry out your God-assigned role, and it's true for anything, just the Christian life, is that you are in Christ Jesus. That you're in him. The foundation of fatherhood and all spiritual leadership is simply a personal, continuous, directed focus on God's grace in Christ. Isn't that where we live? Isn't that what it means to be a believer? Our relationship with God is initiated by him as the first expression of his grace. And that grace is found in the sending of his son to die in our place and to pay the penalty of our sin. We don't ever get beyond that. Doesn't ever grow old for us. We're happy this morning, right, that we have a rock of ages that we can hide in. And so we camp there. We don't, we don't abandon that position. Once we're plunged into the sea of God's grace and salvation, then we begin this lifelong journey of a deeper and deeper understanding and experience of that grace that we laid hold of the initial time in conversion, but we're growing more and more in our understanding and the application of that and the enjoyment of the relishing in that. It's through trials that we learn that God's grace in Christ is sufficient. And some of you have lived long enough to know that you've lived through those trials and you've found his grace to be sufficient, right? Through our ongoing battle to put sin to death, we're still hacking away at sins that we've struggled with for maybe even a great deal of our life. What's the secret to victory? It's our union with Christ and the grace of God through him. There's no other way. We learn that, that. We, we, we see that that's necessary to our strength through the study of God's word and even the ministry of one another and gifted teachers. We learn that God's preserving grace is what keeps our heart forever tender to the things of Christ. I've been a believer since 1984 and I can tell you the temptation is to get sour and cynical and become a cranky old man. But what keeps my heart tender? A continuous focus on Christ-centered grace. What Paul outlines here, it keeps me from that. His grace knows no limit. For where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So in order to provide spiritual leadership to others, you just have to have a healthy relationship with Christ yourself. This is kindergarten 101. This is, but this is spiritual leadership. This is lifelong for us. You can't give away what you don't possess. So you have to experience this. That's why for some of you, what I'm saying might even be foreign. You've not yet experienced 
God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. So you have no idea what I'm talking about. You you can't relate to it. You can't grasp it. For you, the issue is you got to get started by stacking arms, laying it aside, surrendering your life to Christ, and stop playing games with him. And come to him on his terms. Which is a free offer of forgiveness if you repent and turn your life over to him. And that's grace. That's grace. We've broken God's laws and we refuse to bow before him. So you're still running your own life. And really worse, you're not necessarily realizing this, but you're actually rejecting Christ himself by your delay. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. How am I doing that? I I don't, I'm not rejecting him. But here's the thing. If you don't recognize Jesus' death in your place and resurrection from the dead, that uniquely qualifies him to be God and the master and your necessary substitute, that apart from embracing him, you're still asserting your own self-righteous as good enough to be acceptable to God. That is arrogance. That is pride. That is sin. So that's ultimately a rejection. It's to say Jesus' death wasn't really necessary. Wow. I don't think you'd want to say that. But by by delaying and coming to him, that's what we say. God stakes unequivocally that apart from Christ, we have but one future. What is it? A deserved, fiery, eternal hell. That's the reality. That's the scripture. By coming to Christ, though, on his terms turning from self-rule to following him, then you receive what Paul is saying here, being you receive that grace that's in Christ, and that then is the source of the strength of your life. It's truly amazing, isn't it? That a sinful man like you and me could receive God's unmerited favor. Aren't you amazed by that? Aren't you amazed by that? This is great news. Of how sinful men like you and me can obtain grace, be forgiven, and have new life all only through Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you this morning, everyone, especially you guys, will you stop running from Christ and instead run to him? Don't put it off. That's the question you've got to answer today. Resolve it. Resolve it. Right now, resolve it. Now, notice how personal Paul gets in the text. His command to Timothy here, he says, you, my son. Paul's very close to Timothy. There's a close relationship there, very much terms of endearment. There's a a relationship that's marked by warmth, by tenderness, by like-mindedness, all forged in the context of ministering together. That's how we lead. That's how leadership should be. Paul recalled Timothy's tears in chapter 1, verse 4. Paul prayed regularly for Timothy in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul, you can look at these verses later, but Paul knew Timothy's faith was real and sincere and something that he had embraced from his youth, according to chapter 1, verse 5. He knew this. There's relationship. Just think about the relationship. Earlier in this letter, Paul exhorted Timothy not to be timid. Why? Because he knew him enough to know that that was a natural inclination of his personality. 
There was closeness. There was relationship. It was leadership that was relationally pulled off. He encouraged him to keep ministering his gifts in chapter 1, verse 6. To retain the standard of God's word in chapter 1, verse 13. And to guard what had been entrusted to him in chapter 1, verse 14. See, throughout chapter 1, what Paul is doing is recounting to Timothy some of his own personal testimony that Timothy witnessed and saw because he was right along with Paul in the midst of those things. Leadership wasn't, uh, wasn't like the executive off at the ivory tower. It was hands-on, knit together in the context of going through life. That's how leadership's carried out. That's where you see that he's basically saying, look, I'm telling you, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, as if to say you've already seen that modeled by me. You've already witnessed it. Timothy saw God's strengthening grace in Paul's life. He reminded Timothy that he served God with a clear conscience. In chapter 1, verse 3, he invited Timothy to share in his sufferings. In chapter 1, verse 8, he expressed complete confidence in God's keeping grace. In chapter 1, verse 12, and the most immediate context is that Paul told Timothy of the heartache of widespread desertion. In chapter 1, verse 15, look at it. It says, you're aware of the fact, you've seen this, you know, Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Wow. With an oasis of faithful, like-minded men who refreshed him in verse 16, Onesiphorus, to me specific. See, this was the path of grace in Paul's life, and it was the path of grace that sustained him and and appointed leadership in his appointed leadership role. Paul felt his desperate need, and Paul was encouraging Timothy to fly to that one fountain which would be sufficient for the leadership task at hand. God's grace in Christ Jesus. It's where he himself drank, It would be the same for Timothy. And you know what, guys? It's the same for you and me. There is no other fountain. There is no other source. And that's where we need to be flying. We need to be going to. Romans 8, verse 32. Tremendously encouraging and affirming text of scripture, guys. Just look at this text. You've got to see this. It's just another way of Paul's, another way of saying what he says here. He says this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So you need not feel inadequate this morning in your leadership appointed role because in Christ you have everything you need to fulfill what God has called you to and what God has called me to. Now notice that Paul doesn't just plead with Timothy based on the strength of their friendship as close as it is what he says, my son. He says for Timothy, he drives the point home more deeply by giving a command. He says, be strong. Not in your own strength. No, no, not not in your own strength. You have the continuous need and the daily charge to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in and of your own strength. This is non-optional lifestyle for you as a man that God has called you to be in the leadership role that he has given you. 
And there's plenty of other scriptures that talk about being strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And that's the precursor to the armor of God. We can do everything through Christ who strengthens us. And there's lots of different passages that we can look at. As men, as fathers, we are to be empowered by God's grace if we're to faithfully fulfill our spiritual leadership role in the home and in the church. And this is the first and foremost essential element to faithful spiritual leadership. Look, the greatest need my kids have is not for me to provide the best educational experiences. Or it's not even active involvement in a gospel-centered expository ministry, as necessary as that is. It's not an abundance of Christian friends. That's not their greatest need. It's not plenty of activities and sports things. Their greatest need is for me to be a grace-empowered, faithful spiritual leader in their lives. And as a result, for me then to be more like Christ every day so they can see what it looks like. That's their greatest need. If I could say it negatively, might be a bit of an overstatement, but I think you get the point. Their biggest problem is that their dad isn't as filled with the grace of Christ as he should be. That's their greatest problem. We have a long way to go yet, but Christ is sufficient. That's Paul's exhortation, and it's the first essential element of faithful spiritual leadership. Be a lifelong student of the grace and be strongly empowered by abiding in that Christ-centered grace. That's first. Second, you are actively engaged in the reproductive process of discipleship. You're actively engaged in the reproductive process of discipleship. Look at verse 2. This is the second element of faithful spiritual leadership. Right? The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In short, what Paul is telling Timothy is that it's not enough for him to remain strong in the grace on a personal level and then just be satisfied with his own personal perseverance and experience in his own walk with the Lord. That's not enough. It doesn't stop there. He is to pass it on. It's not just about you and your enjoyment of your relationship with the Lord alone, as great as that is. He is to minister, right? Timothy's to minister, to serve. He's to pass on Paul's theology, his teaching, his lifestyle, his gospel, his doctrine. We know this as the faith once for all delivered to the saints in Jude. Timothy has heard it, right, all his life, the things which you have heard. And he has heard it from Paul as Paul trained him. There's an established content of what constitutes the Christian faith. You realize that? There's Christian doctrine. There's Christian words. There's Christian vocabulary. There's Christian language. That's all out of the scriptures, And that content, Timothy, you're to make sure it gets passed on to others who can repeat the process. You're to make absolute sure, you're to invest your life in such a way that the chain is unbroken down through the ages. There's at least three generations of transfer here, right? Look at the text. There's Paul to Timothy, there's Timothy to faithful men, and there's faithful men to others, at least three generations here. The reality, this is the chain that's never broken but continues on even down to us in our generation. Historically, we stand in line because somebody else 
took an interest in you, shared the gospel with you, and then poured their life into you. You're here today because you're standing on somebody else's shoulders, humanly speaking, right? Somebody took an interest. Somebody passed on the gospel. Somebody passed on the truth and imparted to you the Lord Jesus Christ and life in him. I mean, an Olympic relay race, you could have the four fastest athletes in the world. But if they drop the baton, are they going to win? No way. They're not going to win. So there's the illustration. Everything depends on successful passing of the baton. You can be the fastest runner, but if that baton is dropped, then even the fastest team is going to lose. This is God's method for preserving the Christian faith and testimony in this world. We're in this line. You are in, you're in a critical position as a Christian for the next generation and on down through history. So the question comes to us, I think clearly out of this, these things that you've heard from me, and they weren't just public, they weren't just private teachings, they were public. You entrust these to faithful men. I guess the question would come is, then do I know the Christian faith? Could I ask you this morning, if I pointed you out right now and just called your name and had you stand up, could you from scripture defend the doctrine of the Trinity off the top of your head? Look, folks, we got to know the truth. This is no child's play. We got to know the truth. We got to be able to pass it on. Do I know the things that Paul spoke before many witnesses? Do I have the ability to explain what I believe and why I believe it? And is what I believe correct? There's some people that, some, you know, some people that, have, that I've known, you know, I go through seminary and, I, and then I'm pastoring, but it's by vocation. I'm like, well, what a waste. And I'm like, no, no, I raised five kids and my seminary degree is tested every day of my life in my home with the questions and things that I face trying to sort out life with five kids. It's not wasted at all. Not only must I know what the scriptures say, but I must know it to the point that I could pass it on to others under my leadership. So men, do you know your doctrine? Do you? Do you know your Bible? Are you washing your wife with the water of the word? Are you bringing your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? You got to know it. You got to be able to do that. I'm not asking these questions to shame you or cast a heavy burden on you. I'm simply noting that the application of this text is that it is our God-given task as men to be these kinds of spiritual leaders who are actively engaged in the reproductive process of discipleship. We're to disciple our wives and our children. I've often viewed my home as my own little church or my own little seminary. And no, they don't know Greek or Hebrew. So you can cut some slack there. Although we tried Latin with one of them, didn't work out too well. But your family is your own little flock. And and you're their shepherd. God's called you to that ministry. And you function as the pastor. So impart the truth and, equally important, impart your life. Reproductive discipleship is far more than lecture format teaching. It includes times of formal instruction. But Jesus called his disciples, first and foremost, if you looked at it in the scripture, to be with him, to live life alongside 
him. It was life on life, not a program. And I'm all for Bible college and seminary. You can imagine that's where we invest in so many ways. But for, so, for Paul, for Timothy, it, it had to do with being other-centered, others-oriented ministry and invested in loyal, capable men who would be able to repeat the process. I think a good question I ask myself is, if I was alive at that time, and I hope if, if I was alive at that time, that, and if Timothy knew me, that I would be one of the faithful men that he would select. I hope that it would be true of me. How about you? Could you and I be described as faithful believers in the process of reproductive discipleship? Get engaged in the reproductive discipleship process. Find someone who knows more than you and take a personal and will take a personal interest in helping you, and then you take a personal interest at a minimum in those allotted to your care. It's not difficult. The darkest moments of human history have been marked by an absence of faithful men who were not passing on the faith. That's the darkest moments from New Testament times till today. Conversely, historically, the brightest spots of revival have been ushered in by Christ-centered, grace-empowered men who passed on the precious truths of Christ. Choice is ours. Once you experience God's grace strengthening you to faithfully attempt to reproduce yourself and others, then don't expect that everything's going to be peachy. <laughs> Not going to be that way. There will be hardship and suffering. That brings us to the third essential element of faithful leadership. Number three in your notes, you are single-minded in your service commitment. You're single-minded in your service commitment. Look at verse three and four. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. This is the first of three analogies. You and I are soldiers of Christ. We're engaged in a war. Do you guys notice that? We're engaged in a war. This is a battle. It rages. And some of us need to wake up to that reality. You've enlisted, or better yet, Christ drafted you. That's really probably the better analogy. And this is no easy task. There is pain. There is suffering. There is struggle. The imagery is profound, right? We have a post to man. And we're not to abandon our position to the enemy. I would like to nerve you today and strengthen your resolve that your life for Christ counts. Don't abandon the post. Be single-minded in your service commitment. We are not draft dodgers. We are called to active, single-minded service under the guidance of the best CO anybody could ever have. Right? Any soldier could ever want. Yes, there's hardship to suffer. The reality is that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Thank you. The hardship we must endure can come at the hands of many foes, right? We have a world that hates our CO and seeks to lure our kids away from us. We have uh, an enemy that slanders us and our CO. 
and lurks like a lion seeking to nibble, no, to gulp you down, gobble you up and devour our families at the opportune time. The entanglements here, look at the text, the entanglements of everyday life that at times are so overwhelming that the temptation to discouragement and despair is insurmountable. And perhaps most painful to Paul was the hardships that he faced at the hands of those whom he was serving, whom he loved and gave his life for, fellow believers with whom he was again in childbirth labor pains that Christ would be formed in them. So what kept Paul going? What did he think would keep Timothy going in this task as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus or just continuing in Paul in his apostolic line. What is the, an essential element of faithful spiritual leadership? It's simply what I'm saying. Staying single-minded in your service commitment. That's the third component here. Stay focused on grace. Stay focused on discipling those allotted to your charge. And be resolved to faithfully man the post just like you'd expect a soldier to fulfill his duty on the battlefield. Do not retreat. Do not turn and run. Don't surrender. Don't settle for less than best. Where you are sure of Christ's direction and his standard, then don't let the fear men of those whom you lead and how they might respond to your leadership deter you from the appointed course. Be intentionally unentangled. Others may have time for hobbies and pursuits that distract them from the mission. And I did say there's not a place for recreation. Okay. But you can go overboard with fishing. That's probably a bad pun. but <laughs> So there's things that can run amok, right? They're, they're entanglements. They're excess. You have to remain single-minded in your service commitment. Knowing that ultimately it's the Lord Jesus Christ who you serve. He will reward us at the proper time. You know... I don't live through this and the great generation, as they say, is passing away and almost gone. But in wartime, in wartime, there's just certain freedoms that are selflessly sacrificed to accomplish the mission at hand. You can't dabble in this other stuff. There's a war going on. And so for some of us, we could use a good dose of cultivating this wartime mentality and get on with it. At the end of the day, my brothers, life for us is all about what? Pleasing the one who enlisted us as a soldier. We want to please him. We want to please him. Nothing else really matters. We will suffer hardship and the temptations to entanglement. They abound, but so determined that by the grace of God, more than ever, you will be single-minded in your service commitment. Now, after the call to soldier commitment, Paul uses a couple of other analogies, which provide some key elements into this faithful spiritual leadership. So let's look fourthly at this. I'm picking up verse 5 on the analogy of the athlete, and this is how I'm putting it. You are strict and competitive and your self-discipline. That's fourth on my little list of elements of spiritual leadership. You are strict and competitive in your discipline. Let me just give you three observations to kind of move this along, lest I tarry too long. 
First observation is this. When you think about athletics in verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. First one is just to note, you are a competitive athlete. That's an analogy applied to the Christian life. The analogy here is of an Olympic athlete with a very strict regimented training program and routine. Super organized, strict life. The goal is to win the prize so that all of life, get this now, all of life is evaluated in light of its contribution to or detraction from this solitary goal. Everything is evaluated in light of that. Does it help me win or does it deter me from winning? The word compete here is an intense struggle. It's to wrestle with great determination. And the picture is an athlete who's disciplined his body to be in the best possible condition to compete in his chosen sport. So eating habits, physical rest, exercise, Everything is ordered around the goal to win. You, therefore, view yourself as an athlete in an intense competition. That's what this leadership's about. You're a competitive athlete. Now, also, you're not just a competitive athlete. You, secondly, you know the rules. Part of strict competitive in your self-discipline is you know the rules. To win, he has to know the rules, right? If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. What are the rules? Right here. Right here. God's law. God's word. These are the rules. Christ's directions. He has the final say in our lives. And you are in pursuit of all areas of life being subordinate to his revealed truth. How I think about everything, how I think about retirement, how I think about possessions, how I think about my, uh, my 401k, how I think about uh, recreation, how I think about clothes, how I think about church, whatever it is. I know the rules. I want to apply the scriptures to anything. The scripture says it this way, whether you eat or drink. How often do you do that? Every day. The most mundane, simple thing in life, whether you eat or drink, what are we supposed to do? We do it for the glory of God. God's interested in the details. He's interested in the details. And that's not a binding thing, that's a, that's a freeing thing, but then we can know that we can please Him in the details. You know the rules. And this really just highlights the sufficiency of scripture to address everything in life. Make that your lifelong pursuit. I can think back in times in our life where we're in our family, we're trying to wrestle through something and think it's like, well, what does the word of God say about X or, you know, whatever it is that we're thinking about? I mean, just to have the mindset to ask that question instead of to presume that, you know, that's what we're after. You got to know the rules. Now, third observation I'm making on this strictness and competitiveness to your self-discipline is that it's not enough to know the rules. You got to follow the rules, right? If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Well, if you're going to com- you got to know the rules, but then you got to follow the rules. There's no shortcut. We live in a day and age of steroids, performing, uh, performance enhancing drugs and um, supplements. 
a whole host of other attempts to get what is coveted without regard for the rules. To cheat. And if a person gets caught, then they confess it, but they couch it and try to blame it on other people. Professional sports, you don't have to look too far, do you? Well, we're not that much different. We've got to compete according to the rules. We've got to follow the rules. Faithful spiritual leadership treats himself, including the care of his body, in his eating habits, in his exercise, in his sleep, with strict self-discipline, therefore then earning the respect of those whom he leaves. Because even though I don't always agree with my dad, I can look at his life and he's a self-controlled man who is strict and, and self-disciplined in the way he's leading his life. And he has earned the respect by the way he lives. He knows the word. He studies the rules. And he's determined to have a clear conscience, not just by his own assessment, but by God's word, that those rules are going to be followed and no short-term gain that's dangled in front of him is going to get him derailed. That's what we're talking about here. On a very practical level, men, this might require you to ask for help in identifying your physical, social, theological, and spiritual strengths and weaknesses. Take inventory. Get on with it. Get serious about it. And then develop an Olympic athlete type regimen in your life to enhance those strengths and shore up those weaknesses. The primary promise here, look at the promise, right? If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win. He doesn't win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The implication, though, is, is that every, it's not like you, I could beat you and I'm going to win over you in the Christian life. All of us can win. <laughs> that's, that's the great news here. Just, if you do follow the rules and you compete according to those rules, then you can win the prize. And that's not as the world measures it. If you look over at 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, I think this is the win that Paul's talking about. Just flip over a couple of chapters. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And look at this. And not only to me, but What? Also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you and me. We're part of that all. That's the prize that we're competing for. That's what's in front of it's, it's in front of us. So do you want to win the prize? Then show me your training program. And let's see if it matches a strict competitive self-discipline. Let me see your Monday through Saturday schedule. And I'll tell you if you're serious about winning the prize. A race ends, but a lifelong effort is hard to sustain, isn't it? And thus the analogy, which is number three in our analogy, and it's our fifth element of faithful spiritual leadership. So look at the text, verse six. You labor with a long-term perspective. Boy, this is difficult. You labor with a long-term perspective. Now, I'd have to tell you at a personal level, this particular analogy is my favorite. I was born and raised on a farm in the Central Valley and uh, learned what it meant to work without a lot of attaboys in a big parade. 
You know, I've never seen a YouTube video of a farmer out there working and cultivating his thing and then it got a whole, you know, million followers. Didn't go viral. This is the analogy. There's a duty and there's a delight in this text. So let's look at these, a duty and a delight. The duty is simple, work hard. Work hard. Convenience is irrelevant. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to ruin. Generally speaking, folks, hard work pays off. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops, is what the text says. God has established the principle of sowing and reaping. Certainly there are exceptions and God reserves the right to sovereignly overrule. But for the most part, he does reward hard work. And I know many of you who've lived many years, you can attest to this. Spiritual leadership is hard work. And lazy men need not apply. It won't happen. It won't happen. Spiritual leadership's hard. Self-indulgent men quit early. This is a wet verse in your Bible, and I'm not talking about baptism. I'm talking about sweat. A lot of intense prayer on your knees, interceding for those you lead. We all struggle with bouts of self-pity and our own innate desire for a life of ease. There's this growing cult in Christianity of the idol of comfort and convenience. And we need to kill it. We need to kill it. We need to be that hardworking farmer who wants to receive the first, his share of, of, the, of the crops. In light of these realities, the exhortation is given to work hard like a farmer who spends a lot more time working than he does eating the fruit of his labors. I mean, it takes a whole year. You're working, you're cultivating, you're, you're killing weeds, you're doing everything you need to do. And then the, the, the harvest is quick and short. And the amount of time you spend enjoying that is relatively small in light of everything else that you do. And, you know, when I grew up on the farm, you're never really off the clock. Weeds keep growing while you're sleeping. It's annoying. But every crop has its cycle of watering and fertilizing and pruning. There's no public accolades. The work is often done alone. And it's not glamorous. Again, I've never seen some, you know, great movie made of hardworking farmer laboring. So we do our duty. The issue is the duty. Now, don't, it's not just a duty that's a drudgery. Don't forget the delight. I've said there's two words here, right? Duty and a delight. Don't forget the delight. Although the exact timing of the reward is uncertain, the fact that the reward comes is certain. Look at the text, Right? The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crop. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. That's a blessing, but also a warning, right? There's a duty, but there's a delight. He's promised a reward, and therefore it's right for us to be motivated by the expectation of receiving that reward. I like what the text says about the farmer, that he's going to receive this. Any of you like to taste a juicy peach or a sweet nectarine or apricots are usually, you know, June, right? At least that's where I, where I was from. We like that, right? There's just something satisfying about that piece of fruit for most of us. I don't know. Maybe you don't like fruit. I, I, I don't know. 
But the fruit you grow yourself, if you happen to have a tree in your yard or in your or something you raise in your garden, that's even sweeter for some reason, right? There's just something extra satisfying. And that's how it is in the home, dads. Faithful, fatherly, spiritual leadership brings with it the duty, but the sweet delight is that you're the first one who gets to taste it when you see it. And that makes... That joy makes the labor worthwhile. You get a share of the crop, but others benefit as well. Those influenced by your leadership in turn influence others for Christ. And this underscores the blessing of a full quiver of arrows all shot straight. Now let's consider sixth and final, just a little, as I close, the sixth and final element of faithful leadership. Verse 7, I'm calling this, you dependently meditate upon the truth. You dependently meditate on the truth. Look at verse 7. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. These three analogies of the single-minded soldier, the disciplined athlete, and the hardworking farmer are rich and indeed have a great deal of overlap. So you do well to continuously meditate upon all three of them because they'll yield much helpful application in the area of spiritual leadership. Keep thinking about and keep meditating on. Consider them. I simply underscore what Paul is telling Timothy here. Think about these things. Consider your ways. Be a crockpot over these things. Get time alone with God to pray, to plan, to reflect, to ponder the condition of your flock, to seek God for application to these analogies in your own leadership and home. See, one of the greatest problems we have in our day and age is the tyranny of the urgent, the tyranny of the cell phone, the tyranny of electronics that bombard us and strip us of the capacity to meditate. Our lives are so jam-packed that it's a real fight to get silence and solitude. And you got to fight for that, fellas, or your leadership is not going to be in any uh, measure effective or in-depth. Continuous meditation upon these things is, is critical. We need God to illumine our minds, and that doesn't happen in 30 seconds or a minute. It takes time. Consider these things is what Paul is saying. Consider what, and, and the, now the promises, the Lord will give you understanding. What a great promise. You could know that as you meditate on these things and as you study, and I know that in this church in particular, you've got training. You know how to, how to get at the word and you've got training on how to study the Bible the right way. And you do that, God has promised to give you understanding in what? What does the text say? In everything, in everything. Our responsibility is to have an engaged mind and God's promise is to grant us understanding. We are not called to lead and then left to our own devices. No, no, God is with us and it's a walk of faith and he is faithful. So these six elements of faithful spiritual leadership serve as a a great aid to our God-given task as men to our, really our task as believers, appointed even to lead in our homes or in the church. And it's a fulfilling calling, fellas. What mission could be more important? This is worth giving your life for. And ladies, you want to know how to pray for your guy? Right here. Pray this text. Pray this text for them. And embrace these truths. Help them with their calling. 
seek to cultivate these things and encourage them. Be their companion and believe in them when everything else and everyone else is against them and they feel as if they've utterly failed. Don't discourage them with negative, pessimistic approaches. And young ladies, if there's any of you here, you look for these kinds of guys and run from those that don't fit this. Run from them. Look for these, not perfect guys, but ones who spiritually lead. And don't be infatuated with young men who never seem to be serious about the things of Christ. And you young men, just a word to you guys, now is the time for you to stop playing games and wasting your life on meaningless pursuits. Get on board here with this. Prepare yourself now for this role that you will one day fulfill in a fuller measure. Anticipate that and embrace that future if God wills it in your life and admire those men in your midst who exemplify these things. Let them be your role models. Those are the guys that are the real heroes of the Christian faith in the army of Christ. So I want to ask all of you men a simple question. Will you men join me today in the pursuit of this calling? I want you to answer that question. Not verbally, not out loud to me, but you answer it in your own heart. God's not done with us yet. And no matter your past failures or mine or present insecurities, God's able to make us stand and stand the way he wants us to. Paul took the, Paul, I mean, look, think about it. He took Paul, the chief of sinners, and used him as an instrument to reach the Gentile world. That's That's amazing. That's the grace of God. He took Timothy with his timidity and even his neglectful stewardship of God-given gifts and he still used them in spite of himself. And why does he do that? Because he delights to set the glory of Christ on display through using weak men like you and me and Paul and Timothy. May he be praised in the church and in glory forever through Jesus Christ our Lord let's pray Lord uh, you're sufficient for these things we are not we are not adequate for these things yet we know that you your commandments are not burdensome and your yoke is not heavy so to that end Lord we experience and trust by faith that we will experience more of your powerful grace operative in our lives as we seek to fulfill this calling as men, but then even as believers who see this modeled for us here of what really Christian living is like as we look to the leadership of men that you've appointed. Raise up men in this church, I pray, Lord, and that every guy here would not fall short of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Every young man, every even little little young boy that's here, uh, we pray for the men, raise them up, and help all of us, Lord, to apply these things to our own hearts, to consider these analogies, to be actively engaged in the reproductive process of discipleship, and to cling to Christ, who alone is our strength, And thank you for the grace poured out on us through him. 
that though he was rich, he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.